Julie is going to read Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 and going through to verse 26. You'll find that on page 797 of the Red Pew Bible, 797. So what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Um, uh, friends, let's, um, let's bow in prayer. Our gracious Father, we want to thank you so much for your word and we pray that as we come to consider it now, that uh, by your spirit that you would be changing our minds and moving our hearts, that uh, we would be people who understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, and that we would place our trust in him and in him alone and we ask these things in jesus name amen uh, it was a conversation which i'd have i've had with numerous people uh, in different contexts over the years but in this particular occasion it was a lady who uh, was part of our church uh, she had been attending church all her life and now she was at a point where uh, she knew that her life was close to its end. Uh, in other words, she was on her 
deathbed. Uh, so in my conversation with her, this was not the time to be talking about the weather. Uh, this was time for us, for her to do business with God. And so I wanted to speak to her about, about God, about herself, and about uh, what was going to happen for her in the very near future. And so I asked her the question, uh, was she certain that when she died that she would be going to heaven? And I remember the quiver in her voice as she replied saying, I hope so, but I'm not sure. I've tried to do my best. I've been coming to church since I was a child. I've tried to obey the Ten Commandments and but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I've done enough. I'm not sure if I'm good enough. I guess I'll find out soon. Now, I appreciated her humility because it, that humility gave the opportunity for what turned out to be quite a fruitful conversation. But she wouldn't be alone in her, uh, uh, her understanding uh, and the issue there really is that very baseline question, the question which uh, all people must one day face. And that is the question which we've been looking at in Romans, and that is how is it that a sinful person can be right in the sight of a holy God? In other words, how is it that we can get to heaven that's an important question, don't you think? Of all of the questions that you might have to resolve in your life, that's the one. That's the key question. And sadly, it's a question that a lot of people just ignore. But that is the key question. And in fact, it's, it's, it's a question which, brothers and sisters, is dealt with in Romans chapter 3. But before we get to that, uh, we need to set the scene a little bit. And one of the reasons why I was able to have such a fruitful conversation with that uh, particular lady was that she had suspected that she may actually have fallen short in her obedience to God. There, there was a suspicion that she had in her mind. And that is always a, it's a good starting point, don't you reckon? And this is the reason why Paul, in Romans 1 and 2 has been at pains, has been at, at pains at, to expose the reality of human sinfulness, to expose the sinfulness of humanity. Of, of all people in general, and we saw that in particular in uh, chapter 1 of Romans, and in chapter 2 where Paul has really zeroed in on God's people, on the, on the Jewish nation. Uh, God's chosen people. So how about we turn our Bibles now to uh, chapter 3, and if uh, there's an outline in your service sheets, you can follow the sermon and take notes as well. And I want to start by saying that we could imagine a Jewish objector, a Jewish reader, uh, reading what Paul's been saying in chapter 2 about the sinfulness of uh, of God's people, the Jewish people, 
And objecting to that and saying, hang on a moment, Paul. If the Gentiles are sinful and are deserving of God's wrath, then that's understandable. Uh, we can accept that. Uh, that's, that makes perfect sense. But we Jews, we're actually God's chosen people. We've got a covenant with God. And so that if we are in the same situation as the Gentiles, if we are under sin, if we are heading for judgment, then what's the point? What's the point of actually being Jewish? And we see this in uh, verse 1, don't we? Where um, Paul raises his objection, saying, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Given that circumcision was the, uh, that which was uh, identified a person uh, in terms of the covenant that they had with God. So what advantage is there in being a Jew? Well, there's actually a great point. There is, there is a great advantage in being a Jew, which Paul answers. And he says that if you are a Jew, then guess what? You've actually received the very words of God. That's an advantage, don't you reckon? That the God of the universe has revealed himself to you and he has entrusted into you, into your hands... His message for the whole world. That is a great... Isn't it great to have the advantage of being exposed to God's word? It's a tremendous advantage. But friends, having God's word is one thing. Doing God's word is another. And in chapter 2, Paul has shown that that is what they have not done. They've squandered uh, the uh, advantage that's been given to them. But in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, a Jew might then go on to say to Paul, well, does that mean that if we have been unfaithful to God, then he will not be faithful to his word? Does that mean that if we've been unfaithful, some of us have been unfaithful to God at least, then God is going to walk away from his promises that the whole thing doesn't, the whole show is over. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And Paul's response is quite emphatic. Do you see what he, say, he uses these words? He says, uh, not at all. I mean, no way. No chance of that. It's quite emphatic. If I could put several exclamation marks there, this is what Paul is He's emphatically rejecting that notion that uh, God uh, would be unfaithful because what's under attack here is the very character of God. Paul goes on to say that God will be true to his word. In fact, our lies just show up how truthful God is by contrast and how right he is in judgment that's part of the deal of the covenant is judgment now to which a Jew might say and we see this in verses 5 through to 8 well if our unrighteousness shows more clearly how righteous God is by contrast uh, if our untruthfulness helps the Gentiles to see in sharper relief 
just how truthful God is, then hey, aren't we doing our job? Aren't we, isn't God actually glorified by that? Aren't we revealing God's glory by our contrast <laughs> of being sinful? And so, if, if we're actually glorifying God and showing God's glory by being in sharp contrast to Him, then why should I be condemned as a sinner? That's the question. That's the question that's asked. Doesn't that mean that God is actually being unjust? God gets glorified by my sin, and what do I get? I get punishment. You see, it's nicely sort of summarised in verse 7. Let me read that for you, verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Well, there's a good reason why you're condemned as a sinner. And it's because God actually is faithful. God actually is righteous. And God's righteousness is shown in his judgment. Verse 8. Why not say says Paul, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. So this is not academic for Paul. Paul knows that there's some people who are, saying, who are going around saying that because he advocates something, uh, advocates God's grace, that uh, Paul's actually telling people it doesn't matter how you live. And the more you sin, the more merciful God appears, the greater glory that goes to God, so let's just sin all the more. Um, he doesn't really have to answer that in greater terms other than simply saying their condemnation is deserved. <laughs> you get what he's saying there, don't you? So, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Well, yes, great advantage to have God's word and no, if you don't live it. Verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then what follows is one rather bleak view of humanity. I don't know if you picked that up during the, uh, the reading of it. Uh, in verse, let, let's have a look at verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good not even one. In case you've missed it, Paul's saying that we are all sinners, every one, uh, without exception. And then in verses 13 through to 14, we see the evidence of that uh, rejection of God, that sinfulness, in how we use our words. He describes the, our throats as being open graves, 
tongues practicing deceit, lips are poisonous like snakes. And then in verses 15 to 17, he shows how our sin destroys our lives and destroys the lives of other people. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. And then he finishes in verse 18 with what really is the root cause of sin. And what is it? What is it the, what's at the very heart of sin? Verse 18, it's because there is no fear of God before their eyes. We know of God. He's revealed himself to us clearly in the creation. But we choose to live our way, not God's way. And we blot out from our thinking the fact that there is a day of judgment. We don't actually fear that as we rightly should. Now, where does this all place us? Um, there's a, a town which is about 60 kilometres west of Inverell, which is where we used to minister the gospel. And it's, it's called Warrialda. Anyone been to Warrialda? I'm sure, yep. A few Warrialda kind of... Well, I don't know if you've noticed uh, there is a Presbyterian church in Warrialda. It's a very old building and next to it there's another old building and that's the manse, that's the minister's residence. And the interesting thing about the minister's residence is that as old as it is, when it was built, it was built using the bricks from a an old building that had been demolished. And that old building that had been demolished was the Warrialda prison, the Warrialda jail. Some of the bricks are interesting. And one of the bricks, uh, which I've, I've seen, has been etched with the words of a convict. God help me. And when you think about that, I mean, I... I try to put myself in the situation of the person, you know, the desperation of the convict who's locked in his cell for who knows doing what. He's locked in this cruel, cold cell for, for however long and with little hope and in his desperate desperation, his desperate plea that he scratches onto the wall of his cell, God help me and that's the the point where we come to when we find ourselves in a situation facing catastrophe and completely unable to do anything about it and a, a passenger aircraft plummeting to the ground and you'd just be crying out god help me god help me and that's where this passage should actually that's the point that this passage should bring us to for every person, every person. For it excludes the possibility that any of us are actually good and righteous in God's sight. First of all, it should bring a Jew to that position because guess what? These are not words which Paul just made up out of his own head, which he could legitimately do and it would still be scripture. But what he's done here is he's put together a, a, a collection of verses which mostly come from the Psalms but also from Isaiah and 
that what that means is that these this is the word of god which was spoken to israel god in speaking to israel would say that there is no one who is righteous not even one that all have turned away that together they've done wrong this places the jew in that situation of helplessness before the judgment of god and it does the same for all of us for is that if the situation of god's people as we've already seen in chapter one of romans that we all uh, have taken uh, god the creator and have exchanged him for, for for the idols of our lives it places us all in that situation where we could only cry out god help us in the face of his judgment the lady i spoke to she wasn't sure she'd been good enough for god i didn't put my arm around her and say no no it's okay i'm sure you've done enough you'll be all right <laughs> don't worry about it. no i confirmed for her i said you're right i can confirm for you that you have you're not good enough that you have sinned that you have fallen short of god's requirements because we all have people think that if they obey god's commandments that they will be acceptable to him well that's actually right isn't it if you obeyed all of god's commandments uh, friends in the old testament there are hundreds of commandments from god many hundreds of commandments so let's just make this simple shall we do you remember how it is that jesus summarized the commandments um, he said love the lord your god with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself how are you going with that by the way have you been loving god with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind how's your thought life going had any evil thoughts lately what about loving your neighbor as yourself ever treated someone in a way that you'd prefer not to be treated by others <laughs> what about putting god first loving him with all your heart soul and mind ever put anyone or anything ahead of god in your life of course you have of course you have and this is just the summary imagine if we went into the nitty-gritty of the 600 or so commandments that there are i was talking to a fellow one day and he told me he thought he was going to go to heaven when he died and i said why is that and he said because i've obeyed all the ten commandments i said well have you read them lately he said no i haven't i said all right let's have a look at them um you know jesus says you know um whoever you know the the word says do not commit adultery uh, anyone who's committed adultery in their hearts how are you going on that one he said no I struck out on that as we went through him every single one of them he'd breached in the last seven days <laughs> you see it's funny and yet it's so sad isn't it because it all puts us in that situation where an honest look at God and his word and an honest look at ourselves, we'd have to cry out, 
in the face of judgment, God help me. This is what the law does. Paul makes the point here uh, that we are like the accused standing in the dock. And in the, in, in the face of overwhelming evidence, uh, we're left speechless. We're left with no defence. This is what the law does so that the whole world would be speechless. That the law exposes our sin as sin and therefore exposes us as sinners. We see this in verse 20, don't we? Where uh, Paul says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. When we consider the righteousness of God's law, it's like, you know what, you, you see a piece of paper and you think it's white... And then you go up and put it up against something which is actually white and you see it's actually grey. <laughs> you just didn't see it before because you're comparing it to the wrong thing. And this is what the law does. It exposes our sin as sin and therefore us as sinners facing the judgment of God. God help us for there is nothing we can do to help ourselves. One of the nicest words that you can sometimes hear spoken, it's a very simple word, it's the word but. Um, guilty of sin, deserving of judgment, nothing you can do about that. And then the very next word in this text is that three-letter word, but. Offers hope, doesn't it? Offers hope. Martin Luther described verses 21 to 26 of Romans 3 as being, and I quote, the chief point and the very central point of the letter of Romans and of the whole Bible. <laughs> Romans 21, 3, 21 to 26, really the central point of God's revelation to humanity, according to Luther. If we understand the gravity and the consequences of our sin, then what comes after the word but is of vital importance to us. Now, remember that ridiculous question that was posed back in verse 5. If God is just, then how can he punish us? I mean, my sin shows his glory even more. Where is the appropriate question to ask? is if God is just, how can he not punish us? That's the right question. Verse 21. But, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Uh, that is, for us to be righteous means for us to be declared to be right in God's sight, no longer subject to punishment. And clearly, we cannot be righteous by our observance of the law because we fail to do that. Although, 
So it has to be something which is apart from the law that would make us righteous. Uh, although, as Paul says here, it is the very thing which the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, pointed towards. Paul continues in verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, this is, this, is pretty, this is critical. If we don't understand this, then we don't understand the way to salvation. We don't understand how it is that we can be made right with God. Um, and it, in unpacking this, let me just say that, there are, that here the Apostle uses words and languages, words that are not necessarily all that common, but these are words which, uh, which come from three places. Um, firstly, he uses the term justified, and that is the language of the courtroom, uh, where Paul says that all kinds of people, any person, Jew or Gentile, anyone, no matter who they are, no matter how they've lived, even you, even me, anyone can be justified. And it's very similar, it's sort of the same as to be made righteous. To be justified means to be declared by the judge who is God to be right in his sight. Not because we deserve to be, but rather, as Paul says, this is something which is given freely as an act of grace, an undeserved favour. So there is the language of the courtroom. Secondly, there is the word redemption, which is the language of the slave market. You see, you and I were captive to sin, enslaved to sin and enslaved to Satan and the consequences for all of eternity. So in order to be set free, we would need to be redeemed. A price would need to be paid. And then thirdly, there is atonement. And that's the language of the temple. In verse 25, the payment required would be a sacrifice. Someone would have to die in our place. Someone who would, had never sinned. Someone whose blood, whose life carried incalculable value such that his death would be sufficient, enough to pay for all of our unrighteousness, all of our ungodliness, all of our sin. And such a person could only be God himself in the person of his son. This is exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. When the guilt which we which was rightly ours, that our guilt was actually taken from us and was transferred onto him. And he then 
attracted and paid the punishment which we deserved. The price was paid. Our sin is atoned for so that we can be justified, made right in the sight of God. Friends, the death of Jesus proves beyond any doubt that God is perfectly righteous and that he is perfectly just. There is no question about whether or not God is just. And he's always been just. You see, some people wonder, why did Jesus have to die? In the sense that, uh, could God have not have done that some other way? Could, how about if God just simply you know, decided, well, I'm, I'm just going to um, forget about their sin. Uh, I'm just going to brush it under the carpet. I'm just going to forgive their sin because, I mean, I'm God. I can do whatever I want, can't I? Why did God do that? Why did he actually have to send Jesus to die on the cross? Well, again, verse 25 Second part of verse 25. He did this, why? To demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I read a court case just uh, with, happened in England just about th two or three weeks ago uh, where a person was on trial for a significant crime that they had clearly committed. The person confessed to the crime. The person actually reported themselves to the police for committing this crime. The person was guilty and the law required that the judge impose if not a custodial sentence then at the very bare minimum a fine a significant fine if a penalty was not paid then there would be no justice the righteous requirements of the law would not be met but because of the particular circumstances of this crime, the judge felt a high degree of compassion for the offender. So in handing down the guilty verdict, he also offered to pay the penalty himself. The law was upheld. The integrity of the, just, of the judge remained intact whilst the guilty was not punished. It's a bit like the cross of Christ. It's different because we are totally deserving of punishment whereas this particular criminal, was a bit, there was mitigating circumstances. It's different because the judge only paid are fine but the concepts are the same 
For in the cross of Christ, what in the cross of Christ, God's justice intersects with God's mercy. So that God remains righteous and we can be made righteous. But at the great cost of his son. The lady I spoke to, she had a sneaking suspicion that she was not good enough for God. Going to church all of her life, she thought that that's what what it was all about. Be good, go to church and try to obey the commandments. She had never really understood herself or God or Jesus. She's not alone in that, is she? She's not alone. And so in the face of death, she rightly had no peace with God. That's why she wanted to talk to me. And you know, I remember how, how that changed when she finally understood what Jesus had done for her on the cross. There was, it was palpable. There was this, you, could, you could see it and you could feel it in her that there was a, a burden of guilt had been removed. Her fear of judgment had been dissolved and a joy of confidence filled her heart. Not confidence in herself, but in Jesus and what he'd done on the cross. So what about you? You don't want to get to the point of your deathbed before you ask these questions, do you? Are you confident, though, that when you die, that God would welcome you into his heaven? It's a confidence that you you can enjoy, but only as you place your trust in Jesus. For Paul says here that it's this, um, that uh, God graciously forgives, he gives freely to those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust that he is indeed God's perfect and righteous sacrifice. To trust that he did actually bear the guilt of your sin. And to trust that in his death he's incurred the judgment which you deserved. If you've not trusted in Jesus, then today would be an excellent day to start doing that. There's no day better than the present why not sometime today in the quietness of your own heart pray to God confess your unworthiness lay it all out on the table to God open your heart and confess that you've you've done wrong that you've not lived your life for him and give thanks to God Give thanks that Jesus has paid for your sin and ask him for his forgiveness. Ask him to change your life. For be assured of this, that when we ask for his forgiveness, trusting in the death of Christ alone, then that is the prayer which will be answered with a very clear, very emphatic yes. Because God is just and he has justly paid the penalty which you deserved.
so that we can be freely given that gift of eternal life, justified, made right in his sight, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and most heavenly, most loving heavenly Father, we want to confess to you today that we are unworthy sinners, that we have not put you first in our lives, that we have sought to live our own lives our way without you, that we have come short of your glory in so many ways. Father, we are deserving of your wrath, deserving of your righteous judgment. But Father God, uh, we too enjoy that um, that re the reality of that important word uh, that uh, you have now made a righteousness available that is apart from law a righteousness that is found in the death of Christ on our behalf we thank you that in his death that you remain righteous and we are made righteous and so we pray Lord God that um, each one of us here would be those who are trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.